Good afternoon, everyone. Certainly glad to be back, even though my wife did leave me. No, correct. To be correct, I left her. She decided to stay in Montana, and uh, she will remain up there until after Thanksgiving. I hope to be able to go back and uh, bring her home at that time. Today is Veterans Day. I don't know if you're aware, but today I think there was groundbreaking for a uh, national memorial for uh, in Washington, D.C. for veterans of World War II. And uh, quite a number of uh, men who were uh, highly decorated in World War II, from World War II and also from later uh, wars, were involved in that particular event. This uh, occasion originally was called Armistice Day, if I remember correctly. It's called Remembrance Day in Canada. But uh, there was another event that occurred on this day 100 years ago, which was very significant in my family's history. Uh, That event 100 years ago, this day, set in motion events which would influence many of the character attributes of all members of my family. Because on November 11, 1900, my father was born. His character combined with that of my mother, who was a very uh, strong individual, determined the character, I think, of his sons and daughters. We are, in effect, a reflection or a uh, representation of their character and their principles. Today we're witnessing the uh, character and lack of courage of candidates for the highest leadership position in the United States of America. And I think it's a shame that uh, what we are seeing today is occurring personally. A guiding principle in choosing and rejecting men for positions of top leadership followed, which was followed by General Bill, uh, uh, George C. Marshall, who was chief of staff during World War II, was their selfishness versus selflessness factor. I'd like to read to you a little bit from a book entitled American Generalship, Character is Everything in the Art of Command by Per Year. It's a book that has recently been published, I think, uh, very, very recently uh, was released. And he has a section on selflessness as an attribute on page 23. I'm going to break in because I know it's not fair, but uh, in order to explain the attitude and the actions of General George C. Marshall, uh, you have to understand that uh, the man based it upon certain principles. The Secretary of War came to General George C. Marshall uh, with a proposal for an appointment to a high uh, position in the uh, uh, military. Uh, There was a Lieutenant General Drum uh, who uh, he and the President wanted to be uh, placed in a particular position. 
And uh, so uh, General Marshall saw saw this as evidence of General Drum's unfitness. Uh, that is, that he would go through his political connections in order to put pressure on General Marshall to uh, put him into this position. Uh, General Marshall viewed this as additional evidence of General Drum's unfitness and thought it indicated mainly that he was trying to protect himself against criticism for uh, for declining to take another position which he had been appointed to. And uh, <clears throat> quoting, any officer who seemed to Marshall to be anxious to select an assignment to suit his own personal preference was in trouble. General William N. Haskell came in to see me, Stimson wrote in his diary early in 1941, in regard to his detail in the next eight months before he finally retires. I am fond of Haskell, but when I spoke to Marshall about it, I found that Haskell had very much irritated Marshall by his choosiness in regard to his future. Marshall had excellent rapport with Stimson, but he refused to give Haskell special consideration for the simple reason that he had asked for it. There were two significant periods in uh, the uh, history of the United States Air Force which uh, were very critical to uh, the United States' uh, effort and defense in World War II. And... Uh, and following World War II, uh, the first had to do with the development and maintenance of the Air Force following World War I. And the key player in that effort was uh, perhaps notably, uh, most notably, General Billy Mitchell. You've heard of General Billy Mitchell, no doubt. Those of you from Milwaukee have heard a lot about General uh, Mitchell and... Uh, I presume you, like I have presumed, have uh, visited the museum to uh, General Mitchell. But uh, General Billy Mitchell was a man who, at his own expense, was trained to fly. He purchased, uh, he paid for his own uh, training in in flying, and was based upon his. Having done that, and based upon his experience, he was selected as an observer in World War I in Europe, and he became uh, a very, very uh, important uh, individual uh, to uh, General Pershing. Uh, there were some other key individuals following World War I uh, who also had some experience in that war, and who came out of that experience realizing that the next war was going to be uh, very significantly uh, conducted in the air. One of those was General Henry H., known as nicknamed Hap Arnold, and the other was General of the uh, uh, General uh, Carl A. Tuey, uh, who was uh, sorry Spatz, whose nickname was Tuey, T O O. Why? Uh, E.Y. 
and then there was another general, uh, David C. Jones, who was uh, also significant later on in time. But the, simply put, to, to, to mention the, the story uh, and summarize the story, General Mitchell uh, realized that, first of all, the commanders of the U.S. forces, Army and Navy, were not were not appraised and were not of the opinion that air power was critical to the defense of the nation. General Billy Mitchell set about the business of demonstrating and proving to them that it was. They ignored the evidence, and, uh, and it came to the point where General Billy Mitchell realized that the top leaders in the Army and the Navy were falsifying the uh, condition reports uh, to the United States Congress and to the President. And he was unable to get the truth before the Congress and before the uh, American people. And so he deliberately precipitated a court-martial offense. And he uh, he not only precipitated it, but he drove it so that it uh, virtually had to take place uh, even when there were those who were trying to prevent a court-martial. And the reason he drove it to the point of a court-martial was because he knew that was the only way that the uh, lives of the American aviators and others could be uh, properly uh, safeguarded. And so <clears throat> General Mitchell uh, was called before the court and uh, was uh, offered or afforded the opportunity to make his defense. There were some officers, high-ranking officers, and Hap Arnold and uh, Carl Spatz were two of them, who uh, uh, who supported General Mitchell and who uh, indicated their willingness to testify, um, both of them and others <clears throat> were warned if they testified in his defense in, in this court-martial that their careers were finished. They were, they could expect to be put down in, and buried, and as far as their futures were concerned in the military, uh, it, was, uh, it was history. Both of them, however, uh, chose to testify in support of General uh, Billy Mitchell, and both of them suffered consequences. However, both of them, when World War II was uh, started, were called into a service to uh, perform leadership, top leadership positions in Europe and in the Pacific. That's the short of the story. The point is this, that um, leadership is, is predicated upon courage. The uh, courage and the, the willingness, the ability of an individual to stand up and speak up and tell the truth. I think this current situation 
uh, indicates a lack of leadership. Not too long ago, uh, a former leading commentator on the uh, television uh, made the statement that we are, in effect, devoid of leaders today in the United States and as far as that's concerned in the world. What we have today are individuals who are buck passers and who tend to uh, let other people take the heat and, uh, and, and, uh, and assume the liabilities. This is happening, I think, currently in the situation in Florida. The um, uh, vice president and his party have apparently lost that election, as you probably know, uh, based upon the counted votes thus far. And, of course, they've been recounted, and now they want a third count, and some are calling for a revote. Sure, there were some problems in that uh, situation, things which should not have occurred, and this is true across the nation. It has been accepted, and most people understand that there's certain, there are certain things which cannot be totally controlled uh, or governed, and these things are going to happen. Errors are going to creep in because of the human factor. All these uh, people who man the polls are uh, volunteers. Many of them themselves are retirees. And uh, so sometimes uh, there, there are errors made and there are some uh, breakdowns. But I, I will tell you that, uh, in my opinion, personally, uh, what I'm hearing is a bunch of whiners who uh, simply have refused to accept that their team lost. Um, having participated in sports and uh, having been involved in sports m- much of my life, I can tell you that most coaches I have had and I have worked with have a very simple solution to a situation of this sort. And it's, it's very, very simple. They just simply say, stop your whining. Matter of fact, my mother, who was a good coach, would say the same thing. Stop your whining or I'll give you something to whine about. (laughs) And furthermore, coaches would tell the whiners to go and congratulate the other team. That's true sportsmanship. You know, pundits, humorists, are having a field day illustrating the folly and the weakness of certain individuals uh, in this event. Uh, To even threaten to involve the courts in this matter marks a new low in personal conduct, in my opinion, of a candidate uh, for the presidency of the United States. And I think historians and and uh, news people have reported uh, repeatedly uh, the uh, past examples where situations of this sort arose. Uh, the candidates simply chose to put the nation first and to, to uh, concede and go on and come back to fight another day. 
It kind of reminds me <clears throat> of a story. Uh, a man in a hot air balloon was uh, uh, riding over the country and he realized that he was lost. He uh, decided to uh, reduce his altitude and uh, got down low enough that he could see there was a woman uh, below and he descended down to the level where he could uh, call to her. And he said, excuse me, can you help me? And she said, sure. He said, uh, can you tell me where I am? And she said, well, you're in a hot air balloon approximately 30 feet above the ground. You're between 40 and 41 degrees north latitude and 59 and 60 degrees west longitude. You must be a Republican, said the balloonist. I am, said the woman. How did you know? Well, answered the balloonist, everything you told me is technically correct, but I have no idea what to make of your information. And the fact is, I'm still lost. Frankly, you've not been much help so far. The woman below responded, you must be a Democrat. I am, replied the balloonist. How did you know? Well, said the woman, you don't know where you're going, and you don't know where you are. You've risen where you are due to a lot of hot air. You've made a promise which you have no idea how to keep, and you expect me to solve your problem. The fact is, you are in exactly the same position you were in before we met, but now somehow it's my fault. I dredged that story up after this situation this past week, if you want to know, because I think it does indeed illustrate uh, the point. Christ set an example of courage and of character, which uh, is, in fact, a characteristic of God and has been a characteristic of those who fear God and who emulate Him. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1, is, uh, is a very compelling <clears throat> command or uh, instruction. Proverbs chapter 28, and uh, verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The wicked are always on the run. They, they can never seem to settle down and be stable. They're always flighty. They're running here and there, and, and uh, they're always in a, in a dither and an uproar. I, uh, I think that a manifestation of the spirit of Satan must be found there. Satan is never settled. He is always agitated, and he is always agitating others. But Jesus Christ is different. Now, Christ set us an example of faith and courage. In John chapter 7, Jesus' time was coming to uh, an end, his, his time on earth as a, uh, as a human being in his ministry. <clears throat> in John chapter 7... We read <clears throat> that the Feast of Tabernacles was uh, coming up, and uh, because of the uh, problems in, down in Judea, uh, Jesus uh, remained up in Galilee. 
he would not walk in Jewry, John 7, verse 1, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, was that telling us that Jesus was afraid or that Jesus was a coward? Not at all. It's just that Jesus understood the battle, the conflict which he was engaged in, and he knew his enemy. So therefore, he took steps to conduct his business, his affairs in a certain way, uh, which was based on wisdom. Now, verse 2, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. So it was down in Jerusalem, the uh, headquarters. So uh, that's, I think, why it's referred to uh, partially, at least, as the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 3, His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence, he's in Galilee now, and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you do. For there is no man that does anything in secret, and he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Let me make a point here. Uh, if you read <clears throat> articles uh, about the matter of Jesus having brothers and sisters, if you've read them, you will recall that one of the leading arguments against Jesus having physical brothers and sisters is that when it says brethren, it is referring to his spiritual brethren. Does that apply here? doesn't, does it? These were his physical brethren who did not believe in him. But uh, <clears throat> that, uh, just so that you keep, watch for these things. There are times when people will try to teach and, and they'll come up with a conclusion that sounds real plausible, sounds good, and it deceives many, many people. They just don't read the book. They don't go by what the book actually says. Verse 6, Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. You can die any day and nobody's going to know the difference. Now, that's a pretty cheeky statement, say your brothers and or sisters. It was imperative that Jesus not die that day. That, that time, at that moment. And so he had a responsibility to see to it that he did not put himself out there into a position or situation prematurely. The world cannot hate you, but me it hates, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. You know, it seems that there is a rule. Uh, it's a law, virtually, that there is always a price to be paid by those who will step forward, step out, and do the right thing. Uh, the, those who, who step forward and step out and do the right thing are going to pay a price. And those who don't are going to take shots and are going to belittle and are going to put them down and on and on it goes. I remember hearing in 1993, 94, 
uh, from individuals who understood that we had a problem in the church of God. Yes, something has to be done. But because they did not yet want to make a move, because they had not yet secured their um, financial uh, severance package and, uh, and other benefits or other benefits, they didn't want other people stepping out and stepping forward and speaking up and upsetting the apple cart. And the contrast here is one of courage versus whatever else you want to call it. I call it cowardice, but some people might take it, uh, be offended by that. And I'm really terribly sorry if they are offended by it. It doesn't, doesn't make any difference, frankly. But we read, he said, verse 8, you go up to this feast, I do not go up yet. Uh, my time is not yet full, come. And when he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. He didn't go up and, and let people uh, recognize him and, and uh, make it an open uh, move. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people. Uh, turn on your television, turn on your radio, and you'll understand what murmuring is today or what it was then as compared to today. All you hear is a lot of murmuring, a lot of whining, a lot of complaining, a lot of blame-placing. Not my fault that I marked the ballot twice. It's not my fault that that uh, I, I didn't read the, the directions. It's not my fault that when I realized I'd made a mistake, that I didn't go out and admit it and get another ballot and correct it. Not my fault. Somebody else's fault. Remember the balloonist? So there was a lot of murmuring concerning him. Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he deceives the people. Howbeit, verse 13, no man spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Those in power, behind closed doors, round behind the house, they were all watching back and forth and giving their opinions, brave as lions, but openly, they wouldn't say a word. And I <clears throat> have experienced a great deal of that in uh, my years of uh, working with uh, individuals in various uh, times and positions and situations. Um, <clears throat> I had to learn, starting about 1973 that when there is a tight situation, most men will not stand. It's the truth. It just is the truth. It's not easy to stand firm and stand solid on principle. And I say that in sorrow because it has 
it has affected the lives of tens of thousands of people in God's church. Most will not stand. No man openly spoke concerning him for fear of the Jews. Now I understand they had they they there was a definite liability in speaking up and speaking out. But some did speak up and speak out. And those individuals who did speak are on record. Now, verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never learned? It's as if if you don't go to the theological seminary, then you can't understand Scripture, you see. And Jesus answered, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. So if they had been studying the book, if they had been doing their homework, if they were what they professed to be, which was knowledgeable individuals having knowledge of the word, then they ought to know concerning his doctrine, whether it was right or wrong. Because that's the test. But he that speaks of himself seeks his own glory, but he that seeks his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you go about to kill me? he asked. And the people answered and said, You have a devil. Who goes about to kill you? So they accused him of being demon-possessed. And they accused him of lying, in effect. And Jesus answered and said, I've done one work, and you marvel. Moses, therefore, gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers, that is, going all the way back to Abraham. And you on the Sabbath day circumcise a man in order to do it on the eighth day. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken. Are you angry with me or at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment, Jesus advised them. Think about it, is what he is saying. Think about it. Then said some of them of Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? Which is an open admission and statement that, yes, they did, as Jesus had said, they were seeking to kill him. He was speaking the truth. But he, lo, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? This again is back behind the doors. This is what the people are saying among themselves. Around the water coolers is there. They say it today. How be it? We know this man, whence he is, but when Christ comes, no man knows whence he is. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, You both know me, and you know whence I am, and I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom you know not. 
but I know him, for I am from him, and he has sent me. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. <coughs> now Jesus then was able to avoid them and did so. I want to read a contrasting story or event <clears throat> from the Old Testament. And I, I want to go through it completely so that we kind of look at it and compare it to the, the account we just read in John 7. It's in First Kings, Kings chapter 19. It's the story of Elijah. <clears throat> it's a very uh, often quoted uh, account. It's the story of Elijah <clears throat> and uh, his flight to avoid being killed by Ahab at the instigation of Jezebel. Verse 1, 1 Kings 19, verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel what Elijah had just done with the killing of the priests of Baal. And withal, how he had slain all the prophets with the sword after that uh, event. <clears throat> and so Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Now, <clears throat> you know, I've, I've read a number of books on the current uh, administration in the White House. And I, I don't wish to muckrake and, and whatever. I just want to illustrate something. <clears throat> there is currently a book out, which I picked up in the airport in Anchorage, Alaska, which uh, purports to put into proper perspective the, uh, um, the um, events that occurred in the White House and the impeachment trial. Basically, if I were to analyze or, or characterize the thrust of the book, it is, it seems, an attempt or effort on the part of the author to justify the um, occupants of the White House and to condemn the Congress for the impeachment. That's the whole, that's the summation of the effort. And uh, <clears throat> I was struck when I read that story of the similarity between the story of Ahab and Jezebel. Because if you, you look at this account, Ahab had a problem. The problem was that all of his buddies who were the, the false priests had just been slaughtered by God and by the servant of God. And he was too chicken to pull his sword and step up and lead the, the troops. Isn't that, isn't that, doesn't that come through here? Ahab cut and ran. And he told his wife, that dirty old man, Elijah has killed all of the prophets of Baal, all of our team. 
And so Jezebel, <clears throat> I take it, got hot under the collar. And she sent a messenger unto Elijah to intimidate him, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. That's a death threat, pure and simple. And when he saw that, that is Elijah, now how do you fight the queen? How do you fight the woman? He arose and went for his life. And came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he knew, he knew the character of this woman, or lack thereof. He knew this woman's true self. And he knew that down in Judah was not far enough. So he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than any of my fathers. He had done his job. <clears throat> he, he had served God. He had fulfilled the commission as he saw it. This is Elijah. The great prophet Elijah. Now, some would point to this and say, well, Elijah turned coward. No, I don't, I don't think so. Let's, let's, not, let's not make an, a hasty judgment on this matter. As he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Get up and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baked on coals and a cruise of water in his head, and he did eat and drink and laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, because the journey is too great for you. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And so I take it that Elijah had indeed done his job. He indeed had fulfilled his commission. And God didn't condemn him. Actually, God provided for him. Now then, <clears throat> let's go back to, to John chapter 7 account just for a second. Let's think about what Jesus did when he knew they sought to kill him and how he avoided a confrontation or a situation which would allow them to do so. And so Elijah is not really a coward. He is not running as one might assume on the surface. He is not running away from fulfilling his duty. He did his duty. But he just didn't know what else to do now. And he knew for sure that he, his goose was cooked if he remained in Israel, of course, without commission. And uh, so you know the rest of the story <clears throat> and how eventually 
God said to him, verse 15, Okay, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you come, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Now, I don't know if you've ever been through the wilderness of uh, Damascus, but <clears throat> that, uh, that is the area, I take it, south of uh, the city of Damascus down toward uh, Amman, Jordan. I've traveled that route a number of times. And I understand going on foot what it would have, could have been like. It was not a picnic. Certainly not from Horeb where he was. This was no small challenge for a man on foot. So now he had a commission. And it was very specific and very clear. Go anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall you anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of uh, Abel-Meholah, shall you anoint to be prophet in your room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. And him that escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me, verse 18, 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. I take it that Elisha, as you, we, I think, correctly have understood, Elisha thought he was the lone ranger. He was all alone, nobody else. And... God informed him, no, you're wrong. I do have some men out there. And it's a pretty good lesson for us, I believe, to understand that we don't judge other people and we don't, we don't assume that God is not working with people who are uh, not at this moment uh, linked with us. As, as sons, children of God, as having been begotten of God, we are, we are in a position where we have to learn to trust Him. And when He gives a commission, then we can go boldly forward in fulfilling that commission. If we are unsure of his commission, then we have a duty to determine what that job is or what we should be doing and not simply sit back and do nothing. The uh, servants of God have historically been placed in harm's way. This is... Um, this is what everyone in the military has to face. You know, uh, wasn't it during the feast that the uh, uh, the coal was uh, was uh, attacked by, uh, um, or just before the feast? I think I was gone uh, and en route uh, when the uh, uh, coal was attacked in Yemen, and. Uh, 17, I believe, of our young 
men and women were killed in that attack. That's the price that has to be accepted when we are in that business. Now, Isaiah, in Isaiah 57, I believe it is, Isaiah 50, actually, verse 1, Isaiah 50. Isaiah was a man who was a... um, a, a really a, a great servant of God. I, I I have great admiration for Isaiah. I have great admiration for Ezekiel and Jeremiah, all of the, the prophets of old, but I think Isaiah was a great uh, prophet. And uh, so Isaiah the, the, was served in a very critical time uh, leading up to the uh, destruction of the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, prophesying to that. Isaiah 50, verse 1. He, he's inspired to, to tell the people. Here's what God says. Isaiah 50, verse 1. Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Wherefore, when I come or came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? And is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink, because there is no water and die for thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. So what he is saying is, when I reach out, when I come to you, is there none who will respond? You know, Noah must have been a... uh, Unless he really understood his role, unless he understood his commission, well, he would have would have had to be extremely frustrated and disappointed because none responded affirmatively to his warning. It is one of the one of the things which I have heard in this day and age is that oh well the telecast is useless uh, the, the, the effort to proclaim the gospel to the world is useless today. That's finished. You've heard it. Individuals have chosen to satisfy or seek to satisfy themselves and their own desires, their own pleasures, rather than to sacrifice to do a work because they are looking at numbers. And they're making a very foolish mistake. Because that's not the barometer. Uh, From time to time, I have opportunity to speak to people who have responded to the telecast. And, you know, every time I talk to one of them... And they're so excited and so turned on and so happy to have found the the work of God again. 
some of these people who dropped out in the 70s or, or uh, in the 80s, they're so excited and so happy in effect that they have had another chance. Now you tell me, if those individuals are spared a horrible experience in a tribulation, or worse yet, if those individuals are spared perhaps even the lake of fire itself because they had forsaken God and turned away, having received His Spirit and had lived, having lived in some cases, and uh, we assume they had received God's Spirit at baptism by laying on of hands, and those people having an opportunity to return and get on track. Do you think it's unimportant to them? Do you think the work which, in effect, presented to them the truth anew is... Do you think it's insignificant to them to have had this opportunity to hear again and respond? And I hear it frequently from individuals who respond or have responded to the telecast. Also, those individuals who are responding who never heard before the truth of God being preached on the world tomorrow. Those individuals also are being called and given an opportunity to obey God and qualify for the kingdom of God. Now then, let's go on. God here is saying, then, is it insignificant to you that I have come and offered an opportunity for individuals to come back to me? Then verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakens morning by morning. He wakens mine ear to hear as the learned. Isaiah, he is saying, God has given me the mouth and the words to speak. He has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, verse 6, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He knew he was doing his commission. He is near that justifies me. Who will contend with me? He asked. Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. Verse 10, Who is among you that fears the eternal, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. Behold, all ye that kindle a fire... 
that compass yourselves about with sparks. He is saying to those of you who are doing nothing but stirring up trouble, those of you who are causing fires and trying to start a, a, a conflagration, you listen. Walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks that you have kindled. This shall you have of mine hand. You shall lie down in sorrow. It is not going to prosper. Because there is a God. We live in an age where the fear of God and putting the fear of God and the work of God and being concerned for individuals... Uh, who are out there and who who may um, who have a great deal to lose? Putting them first, it, it's it's not it's not in the heart of many of God's people today. But it is in the heart of some. A few thousand, as in the days of Elijah. When there were 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal, whose hearts were fixed and whose hearts were stayed on the truth of God and service of God. In the same way, there are a few thousand today whose hearts are fixed on the commission God has given us and who are courageously pursuing that work. We're commissioned to be faithful to God. As ministers, ministers, I, I tell you, I confess to you that I have been terribly disappointed by the lack of courage in the ministry of the church through the recent apostasy. Many did not stand firm. Many did not oppose the apostasy uh, or... In some cases, they delegated the teaching of it to their subordinates, knowing it was wrong. Then later, they denied ever teaching it or ever or supporting it. And I, I'm here to tell you that I know, as surely as I stand here, that every one who has failed that test will meet it again. I assure you, they will meet that challenge again. Because that's the way God works. And you know, <clears throat> there was an article Mr. Ames gave me from the Wall Street Journal entitled, Uncommon Valor Was a Common Virtue by James J. Bradley. I'll sum it up. He is the son of one of the six who raised the flag on Iwo Jima. His father, his father was one of the six who raised the flag at, on Iwo Jima. And, and of course, you know, there were two raisings of the flag and all that stuff, but that's, that's neither, not my concern today. I'm aware of that. But in writing after his father's death, he said, and I quote, I assumed that maybe my dad hadn't done much in the battle and that he was embarrassed to be considered a hero, but my family and I learned it wasn't as simple as that. After my father died, 
almost 50 years later, his captain on Iwo Jima, Dave Severance, phoned my mother and asked her if she was aware that her husband had been awarded the Navy Cross for action two days before the flag raising. No, she answered. The Navy Cross is second only to the Medal of Honor, and yet my dad kept it a secret from his wife, family, and community for 50 years. After I learned this, this is his son writing, I went to Washington to research his citation. I learned that on February 21, 1945, my father's company was facing Mount Suribachi, a seven-story hollowed-out killing machine. Thousands of Japanese armed with machine guns, anti-aircraft guns, even tanks were hidden behind seven a wall seven feet thick. There was no cover. In this sea of blood and screams, my father, a corpsman, saw a Marine fall wounded 30 yards away. According to his citation, he sprinted through merciless Japanese gunfire, stabilized the wounded Marine, and dragged him back to safety with bullets pinging off the rocks at his feet. Days later, it was my dad's turn to be a casualty. A shell drove hot shrapnel into his legs, hips, and feet. His pants were shredded and soaked with blood, but eyewitnesses said he would not tend to his own wounds as he continued to care for others around him. And, of course, then he said, after reading all this, I drove across the Potomac to the Marine Corps Memorial and stood gazing at the words chiseled in the marble base. Uncommon valor was a common virtue. I looked up at my dad's 35-foot-tall bronze figure, wondering why he had never shared his uncommon valor with me, a son. Something didn't add up. So he said, I phoned other decorated veterans of Iwo Jima. They were all very much like my father. Humble, self-effacing. They had maintained that they really didn't do much and that anyone would have done the same thing. Invariably, they would claim, I was just doing my duty. Mr. Jack Lucas, as an example, jumped on two grenades on Iwo Jima and later endured 27 reconstruction operations. I asked this Medal of Honor winner why he jumped on those grenades. He said, to help my buddies. Corpsman George Wallen was injured in the eye and shoulder, but patched himself up secretly so he would not be evacuated. When an exploding shell shattered his ankle, leaving his foot dangling and all but disconnected from the leg, he shot himself with morphine, taped up his ankle, crawled back to the fight with one good eye and one good arm, one good leg. Carmen Wallen had to be dragged off the field of battle. Why? I asked him. He answered, I just did what anyone else would have done in the situation. And so he said, I became frustrated in my search. <clears throat> I thought to myself, if uncommon valor was so common on Iwo Jima, why can't I find the Rambos of my imagination? All I could find were humble guys who insisted they hadn't done much. And then it dawned on me that I was looking at the wrong side of the equation. Uncommon valor was a common virtue. 
I had been focused on the concept of valor. But I realized then what my dad's life and words and the words and lives of these other heroes were trying to tell me was that it was all about common virtue. My dad and his comrades were men of common virtue before Iwo Jima, on Iwo Jima, and after Iwo Jima. Their actions and lives were consistent, but their heroism is a matter of perception. John McCain warned me that I would never find a hero who admitted to being one. The reason I have come to understand is that the hero is acting in the moment, doing instinctively what he had been trained to do. In their eyes, just doing my duty is not a humble phrase. It's an accurate one. They were just doing their duty. But it's we, the observers, who watch them doing their duty under a hail of bullets who award them the label of hero. I realized that the key to my dad's life was the attitude of common virtue he practiced throughout his days. It was his character, in other words who he was. My dad, running through bullets on Iwo Jima, doing his duty in the Pacific. And more. You know, most of us have not known the experience of the crucible of war. I've avoided it been very blessed not having that experience, and I'm thankful for it. And I think all veterans would wish that all men could avoid combat. And I think all the veterans on this day who who were in World War II, who were in World War I, if there are some still living, and Korea and Vietnam would say the same thing. War is not the way to peace. does not produce peace. It only prolongs a system. It only prolongs a regime. But in conclusion, I want to tell you, I have known many men and women who exhibited great courage through very sore trials in the last 40 years of my service. I know many who have sacrificed greatly and courageously through faith, some to the point of death, and they have proceeded, or preceded us rather, in completing their calling and their commission. Some of those individuals sacrificed a great deal in substance, their substance, in doing the work of God because they were committed to the work. They saw, they had a vision, they had a focus on doing the work of God and they were not concerned about themselves. It pains me now from time to time to hear individuals cry and complain and whine about sacrifices they 
perceive they have made. In some cases, their tithe. <coughs> In a few cases, other contributions that they have made. And they have lost their focus and their vision. We grieve the loss of every one who dies in the faith. I just had the sad duty of a trip to Anchorage, Alaska. You know, Don Erickson, who was our host, a deacon in Anchorage, Alaska, was a man that I have had not met until I think it was February of 1998, January or February of 98. But I have known Don since about 1973. I have known this man and I knew his character. I'm going to tell you something that I don't think his wife knows. And I assume she'll hear this tape and I hope not to offend and only I want to pass on because I think it's important. Don was involved as guide. He was a professional guide, and he was involved in taking church members out, not for hire, but as a service. And he has done that a great deal. And uh, he lost his license because of the indiscretion violation of one party. A group of sportsmen, I had a sports club in uh, the church area where I was. We had a lease and we maintained this area as uh, a sports club. After we heard what had happened, we took up a collection for Don because I knew in my heart that the man did not have the uh, substance to take care of such a situation. And I also understood that he was innocent of any wrongdoing personally and that he had instructed the parties not to do what they ultimately did against his direction and in his instruction. My understanding is he never got the money. That it, uh, I have no idea where it went. But apparently, I, I, don't, I, I don't know that for certain. You know why? Because Don wouldn't talk about it. You know... When I talked to him about that incident, you know what he said to me? It's the best thing the world could have happened. Best thing that could have happened. Because he quit guiding, he got a job as a carpenter cabinet maker for the University of Alaska. And he totally changed his career. And, and as far as he was concerned, that, that incident was just a blip on the screen. I listened to the 
the, the statements of his friends, of things Don did quietly behind the scenes for years that nobody knew. The sacrifices that he made because he was quiet. He was a quiet man. I knew this intuitively from the from what I heard about Don as far away as you could get from where he lived. He was in Anchorage, Alaska. I was in the southeastern United States. And when I heard stories about this man, I said, that's my kind of guy. And I'm telling you, after 30 years or so now, I can tell you not that my intuition was correct. And when I, when, when, when things were beginning to happen in Alaska and some individuals there were beginning to uh, realize that there was an apostasy going on and something, somehow or other, someone mentioned Don, Don's name. And I said, Don belongs with us. I believe Don will be with us. And he was. He was a quiet man, and in my opinion, he, uh, he was a hero, truly a hero. I won't tell you all of the stories that I have heard about him as a person, because he wouldn't want that. But I'm telling you that courage, and courage in particular, is living Day by day, your true belief, being true and honest and faithful, day by day. And as things come up which are contrary to your self-interest, having the heart, the bigness to step up and say, like Don did, ah, it's just a glitch. It's not important, and look on and go on forward. God is preparing us as kings and priests and leaders and teachers for his kingdom. And the process is developing faith, but along with it, the application of that faith in living a very courageous life. And you have many thousands of brethren out there who are doing that on a daily basis. Some of them, you hear from time to time, fall by the wayside through death. But we must never forget what Isaiah said in Isaiah 57. The righteous perish, and none lays it to heart, and merciful men are taken away, none considering that they are taken from the evil to come. For that, we can be thankful and rejoice and thank God. Our challenge is to be there with them and join them in the kingdom of God when Jesus Christ returns, and to be a part of of the kingdom of God, bringing peace and prosperity and 
good things and direction to the whole world. It indeed is a mighty calling which God has given us.